Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. There's a difference between hearing loss and selective hearing, isn't there? Hearing loss is that physical condition where your ears just don't function the way they should. Selective hearing is not hearing the things you don't want to hear. Selective hearing is about not hearing opposition or things that put you at an inconvenience. This morning, John will invite us to consider how our hearing might also be selective. How our sins might stop our ears from hearing these life-giving words of Jesus. See, in the end, our sinful hearts naturally reject the words of God. But Jesus draws our attention to one particular problem which makes us, us deaf to his words. So here's our big idea for this morning. Our devotion to earthly glory can make us deaf to Jesus' life-giving words. In particular, Jesus comes down in verse 44, and everything kind of culminates to this section of this passage where Jesus is going to look at these people and he said, how can you hear me when you receive glory from one another? He's going to zero in on this particular problem amongst these spiritual elites. We're going to kind of break our passage into two different sections this morning. In verses 19 through 29, we're going to see the reason and reward for belief. And then in verses 30 through 47, we're going to see the confirmation of Jesus' testimony and the cause of unbelief in verses 30 through 47. So I want to dive in this morning. We've got a lot to cover. I was noting with Brian this morning about how I gave Brian a passage, almost all of John chapter 4, and next week I gave Brian a full John chapter 6, 70-some verses, but I conveniently split John chapter 5 that I preach into two manageable sections. So it's good to be the guy who splits up the text, I guess. Chapter verses 19 through 29. Read there with me. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees his father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgments to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My words and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life, but does not come into judgment, but has passed from death. To life. We're going to start this morning the reason and reward for belief in verses 19 through 29. Now let's just take a minute here because this, this text can kind of, uh, it can feel like it's a big ball of, of Christmas lights, right? You ever see a National Lampoon's Vacation where they pull up the ball of Christmas lights? It's hard to kind of unravel exactly what Jesus is saying. But we want to start here this morning by actually reviewing what happened last week because these two passages actually go together. See, last week, Jesus healed a man who had been paralyzed for some 38 years. 
And Jesus healed him as it happened to be on the Sabbath. And this caused, caused no shortage of controversy there toward the uh, middle of the, the chapter in John chapter 5. And Jesus defends himself amidst these accusations from these uh, Pharisees and religious elites. In verse 17, he says, My father is working until now, and I am working. Jesus unequivocally makes himself equal to the Father. Now, what we see Jesus saying here in verses 19 through 24 starts off with this issue of equality, right? Jesus, uh, the reason for Jesus' words having authority is that he speaks on behalf of the Father. Jesus only does what he sees his Father doing in verses 19 through 21. Jesus tells us that he does nothing without watching the Father do it first. It kind of calls to mind when you're driving around in the springtime, the, the sun is hitting your face. We're ready for these days, aren't we, right? The sun is hitting your face, and we see uh, an older man mowing his lawn, and next to him is his son, push mowing right next to him, right? Doing exactly as his Father does. But this isn't so demeaning for Jesus. Jesus is actually doing some pretty amazing things. Let's not get the notion that Jesus is doing something lesser than the Father, because look at what he says in verse 21. Just as the Father gives life, Jesus is also giving life. This is exactly what he will do. And notice it's not just that he gives life, he actually gives judgment also in verses 22 through 23. Jesus tells us that the Father judges no one, that he's given all judgment to the Son. Later on in our passage, in verse 27, Jesus will tell us that this is because he's the Son of Man, kind of tapping into this uh, Daniel chapter 7 understanding that he's given authority by the Father to be able to judge. And in verse 30, we'll see that he only judges as he sees the Father doing. So we get this full picture of what Jesus is doing. He's watching the Father, and he's initiating judgment. So Jesus tells us, the purpose of this, he says that it's to honor the Son. That's what he says in verse 23, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Now, the Father has entrusted this issue of life and judgment to the Son so that Jesus might be honored like the Father is honored. He's not some kind of JV deity. God's giving him this authority so that he might be revered. Jesus gives, it all culminates to verse 24, Jesus gives eternal life when we hear his word and believe his Father. Look at verse 24 with me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. See, Jesus brings the emphasis of 19 through 23 to this kind of real-world living of 24, and how does the Son give life? How is he to receive the honor that the Father receives? It's by belief. When we hear Jesus' words, we're actually believing what the Father has accomplished or what the Father is doing. That's what Jesus says. We hear him, but we're believing his heavenly Father. See, in Jesus' mind, the words of the Father and the Son are of one piece, such that truly hearing Jesus' words is, is believing the Father who sent him. We have this nerdy term that we use called, in, in, amongst theology nerds like myself, it's called perichoresis. 
And it means this, it's like this mutual indwelling that the Father doesn't act independently of the Son or the Spirit, and the Son doesn't act independently of the Father and the Spirit. Uh, they're all kind of acting together. So anything that Jesus accomplishes, it's also approved of by the Father and the Spirit and actually participated in to some degree. See, this is what Jesus is describing here for us. He's been given this task of judgment and trusted with this task, but it's not like the Father's off doing something different or the Spirit is off doing something different. They're all mutually involved in one another's work. And so Jesus gives us this rich picture of exactly what's happening when he speaks judgment, the Father is in heaven approving of what he's doing. When Jesus is giving life, the Father is in heaven approving of what he's doing. In fact, Jesus is only learning to do these things as he watches his heavenly Father do them. Now notice the outcome of this belief in verse 24. It's eternal life. You ever wonder about the state of your salvation? You ever kind of have some great agony about what it is that is happening in your life? Am I truly saved? Am I truly part of God's people Christian, if you're hearing Jesus' words and believing, eternal life is yours. This is what Jesus is saying with with no lack of clarity. He's not mumbling here, is he? I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Your spiritual life hangs in the balance upon one issue and one issue alone based upon the belief that you express in Jesus Christ not on the good works that you do, not on the spiritual disciplines that you perform, based only on your belief in Jesus, your belief in what the Father has sent. And so what Jesus does is he expands now on this term belief or on hearing. That's what he said in verse 24, right? Whoever hears my words, he's going to grab that word here, and he's going to expand it again in verses 25 through 29. Look at verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. See, Jesus is grabbing this idea of hearing and he's going to expand it and he's going to speak about his powerful word and what it will do now in the present tense and what it will come to do in the future tense. If you look here at our text, look at verse 25. Have you located it? Verse 25 says, an hour is coming and is now here. And then he repeats in verse 28, an hour is coming. He's talking about two different ages of time. In the first age of time, he's going to describe that those who hear are given life. And in the next age, those who hear will be drawn out of their graves. Verses 25 through 27 are this first age. Those who hear have words of life. Jesus is saying that right now, those who hear his voice are raised to new life. And once again, Jesus is doing this thing that he does from time to time again, where he he speaks with dual intention. He's talking about spiritual reality of new life in Jesus Christ that we're kind of raised up spiritually speaking, that we were once dead in our trespasses and sins, but now we've been made alive in Jesus Christ, right? 
But he's also speaking in a very physical sense, because in just a few chapters, in John chapter 11, Jesus will raise a dead Lazarus out of the grave. He'll call forth and say, Lazarus, come forth, right? And so he's speaking with this dual intention. Verses 26 through 27 mirror something that we saw in verses 21 through 22, that Jesus gives life and gives judgment. And he proceeds to describe this in verses 28 through 29, this future age. All will be raised to judgment, verses 28. Notice Jesus talks about hearing again in verse 28 here. In verse 24, uh, oh man, you know, you tie yourself to technology and then you get all tied up in it. I bought this new thing to preach from and now I lost my place. Isn't that fun? You want to start over again? See, in verse 24, when we heard Jesus' words, we could believe his Father. In verse 25, believing, uh, the believing people hear Jesus' words unto resurrection, but eventually it's this word of Jesus that will call forth men and women from all ages, through all generations, out of their graves. The, the words of Jesus will clear out the tombs and graves around the world and gather God's people for judgment, right? God's words actually are, 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 are uh, cemetery empty, emptying, as it were. But how can we know? Here's Jesus making these bold claims about his words. How can we know that these things are true? Right? I, could, I could stand before you today and tell you that I can dunk a basketball on a 10-foot rim. It's not true. It's not even close to being true. I can't even dunk a basketball in like a six-foot rim, and I'm five foot 11. I could stand and make that claim to you. I could make an outrageous claim. But if I don't have any kind of uh, story or, or likelihood of backing it up, you shouldn't believe me, right? Well, here's Jesus. He's making this incredible claim. Does he have the credibility to back it up? The incredible claims need credible evidence to be believable. What proofs does Jesus give that his word carries such authority that he claims here in these verses? See, when we get to verses 30 through 47, Jesus starts to, to push into this a little bit because he wants to say, no, my word is reliable. And yet you're still rejecting it. See, in verses 30 through 47, the confirmation of Jesus' testimony starts in verse 30 and pushes all the way through verse 36. But then we see the cause of their unbelief in verses 37 through 47. Read with me in verse 30 of John chapter 5. I could do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and, as, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the, ver the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am do doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So Jesus gives us three different evidences of his, uh, the, 
validity of his words. And the first evidence is this, that Jesus only sought to do the Father's will. That's what he says in verse 30. He says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. See, if he alone were testifying about himself, his testimony wouldn't be credible, right? If I could say, oh, you should have seen me dunk that basketball. I, I just, I dunked it really hard, right? You wouldn't believe me. You, you had to have no basis to believe me, right? You see, instead, he's testifying to the Father's end. He's saying, I'm not doing my own will. I'm doing the will of him who sent me. But there's another who bears witness to Jesus. And verse 37 tells us that the Father also bears witness. How? Uh, Namely, through the Scriptures. We see the Father constantly bearing testimony about who Jesus would be throughout much of the Old Testament. That's why the Old Testament is so valuable. But evidence number two is not just that Jesus sought the Father's will. Evidence number two is that John the Baptist bore witness in verses 32 through 35. Jesus reminds them that they actually sent a contingent from Jerusalem way back in John chapter 1, verse 17, and they sent this contingent to John to ask who he was. And John told them that he was, uh, he was not worthy to untie the sandals of Jesus. See, John bore witness to who Christ was, and he spoke to this delegation, this group of Jews, and he told them exactly who the Messiah was. And so John had borne witness. So Jesus is doing the Father's works. John the Baptist is testifying. And then finally, in verse 36, we see that Jesus' works are bearing witness. Isn't this how we got into this whole discussion in John chapter 5? John chapter 5, we started with this man who had been paralyzed for 38 years, and Jesus heals him on the Sabbath. And isn't this the whole point of these first 11 chapters of John, that John's going to introduce us to these seven signs that we should be so familiar with. You remember these seven signs. I think there's a slide here. Jesus turns water into wine in John chapter 2. He healed the official son in John chapter 5. Here he's healed the uh, paralytic man in John chapter 5. Next week, John's going to, or Brian's going to cover two different miracles as Jesus feeds the 5,000 and he walks on water. In John chapter 9, he's going to heal a man born blind, and finally he's going to raise Lazarus. My numbering is off there, but you get the point. There's seven miracles there. See, all of these things give weight to the idea that Jesus speaks with authority, that he's not just making this stuff up, that he's actually a credible witness to this incredible claim that he's given us about his word. In fact, notice that in this chapter, Jesus works a miracle so that we might hear these words these miracles are only given to cue us into the lordship of Jesus Christ. So in these uh, verses 30 through 37, we see that Jesus has a credible claim. But in verses 37 through 47, the, the text kind of turns, and it starts to look at these Jewish authorities. It's like God's kind of inviting us to say, why do some people not believe? And so we see the cause for unbelief. And namely, Jesus has a few things to say about this. Look at verse 37 with me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. 
You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Jesus lays out a devastating critique here, doesn't he? I wonder if we might just remove ourselves from the context of the situation and turn these words to ourselves. See, what he says is that these Jews don't know the Father. And in verse 37, he says that they've never seen him. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. It's true, right? Even their hero, Moses, only saw a brief glimpse of God's backside glory. Jesus' point is even deeper. Here these men claim to be authorities on spiritual matters. And they've never seen or heard from God. And so he's unseen. He's unheard. In verses 38 through 40, he highlights that this God is misunderstood. Jesus says that these Jews, they don't have God's word abiding in them. Even though Moses spoke God's words to them, even though the prophets spoke God's words to them, even though they poured over these words of the scriptures, and by the time they were 13, they were supposed to have memorized the first five books of our Old Testament, yet they still didn't know him, and his words weren't in them. Verse 39 uh, doesn't let them off the hook either. Look what he says. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me. See, they, they pour over these scriptures night and day. They just invest themselves and invest themselves. They search and search and search, and yet they still missed Jesus. Notice, Jesus tells us that the scriptures are designed to point to him. They aren't a guidebook for life. They aren't just a history lesson. They aren't meant to be a textbook. The point of the scriptures is to point to Jesus Christ. And fundamentally, these men failed to see Jesus. Verse 40 says that the end is this refusal to come to Christ. And notice what we have there then. We have a group of people who have been devoted to the Bible, to studying the Scriptures, to knowing the words of God, but not seeing Christ. Being blind to the glory of God. Being deaf to the words of God. We can be Bible-oriented people who don't see Jesus. You can have a flawless Christology. You can understand the atonement to its fullness. You can understand the timeline of the Bible. You can know all of its arcs and all of its narratives. You can know everything and not know God in Christ. illustrated by the fact that one of the best biblical scholars that we see in the New Testament is Satan himself. Satan himself comes at, in Matthew chapter 4 and starts unpacking the scriptures in his temptation to Jesus Christ. 
James tells us that uh, even the demons believe there's a God and shudder. See, we can know the Scriptures while fundamentally being opposed to His purpose. So, God's missed because He's not seen, He's not heard, He's misunderstood. But finally, and this gets to the heart of the issue in verses 41 through 44, He's undervalued. And this might be the most condemning of all. It's one thing to miss the point of the Scriptures, but it's another thing to expose the heart at odds with God. God's told us consistently that He doesn't share His glory with others. Isaiah 48 says this, My glory I will not give to another. But here these Jewish authorities are eating the forbidden fruit. Verse 44, isn't that what He says? He says, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another? See, Jesus doesn't receive glory from other people, but these Pharisees can't get enough of it. Notice what Jesus says these leaders will receive. They'll receive one another. Uh, They'll, you know, kind of open up the doors for a good rabbi or a good Bible scholar or whatever else it is. But they close the doors on the Son of God himself. Verse 44 says that they'll receive glory from one another. And that's actually, ironically, what doesn't allow them to hear the words of God. Verse 44 invites us to this true issue. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? See, these religious leaders preferred the glory of man to the glory that comes from God. They preferred the short-lived respect, adulation of men that changes every five minutes to the everlasting eternal life that God had provided. Later in John 17, Jesus tells us that the Father has given his glory to his disciples. But these men love the glory from one another more than the honor from God. It's like seeking advice from an idiot. It's like receiving a million-dollar check from someone who's bankrupt. Receiving glory from a man who has no glory is nothing. Finally, Jesus shows us the fallout of this. Look at verse 45. He says, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? That's what Jesus does here. This is, I love how Jesus works this. Jesus tells us this basic principle that Moses wrote about him. In fact, we kind of see this confirmed in places like Luke 24, and here in John 5. But if anyone claims to love the law written by Moses, but doesn't believe in Jesus, they don't really love the law. Because Jesus is telling them that the law is about him. It's like saying, you know, I love Old Yeller, but I really don't like dogs. Kind of a cat person. Doesn't make any sense. Anyone who claims to love The law also loves Christ. 
these Jews who claim to be about the law are not actually law-loving people. Notice that last uh, week when we were in John chapter 5, they're so zealous to keep the Sabbath that they're willing to murder to keep it, right? They're, they're so zealous about the law, they're willing to break it. See, the upshot is this. If, if they don't believe Jesus, they don't really love the law. And if they don't love the law, why are they concerned about it? Namely, because they love glory. So we just step back. This is dense kind of uh, teaching of Jesus. What are we getting at? See, in 19 through 29, Jesus has true authority as he speaks the Father's words. He, he, his voice pulls disciples into belief and pulls sinners out of their graves. And in verses 30 through 37, Jesus' words are trustworthy. They're, they're verified. They're validated. They're validated by the Father's words. They're validated by, by John the Baptist's words. They're validated by the signs that he performs. Yet we come to this tension in verses 37 through 47 that these words are unrecognized by these Jewish authorities because they haven't seen or heard the Father because his word isn't in them. And finally, because they love glory from one another. See, we were reminded this morning that Jesus' words and Jesus' words alone hold promise for eternal life, right? Hearing brings life. That's what he tells us in verse 24. He says, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. When we hear Jesus' words and believe in his Father, eternal life is ours. We possess it. But here's the problem is that you and I have a hearing problem. Going back to Genesis chapter 3, when Satan whispered into the words of our, into the ears of our ancestors, did God really say, we've doubted it ever since. And to this day, we don't hear like we once did. Paul tells us this. He says that spiritual things are spiritually understood. And the natural man doesn't understand the things of the Spirit. So you and I are stuck in our natural selves. And when God speaks his words to us, it's like bouncing off our forehead. It's like speaking to a teenager, right? now, there's one who has listened to his father's voice. Did you catch that? We're so busy about glory that we don't listen. But there's one in our passage who always heard the father with distinct clarity. There's one who always obeyed what his father told him, right? Jesus himself listened. He says in verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek it, not my own will, but the will of him who sent me, right? Jesus did only as he heard his father telling him to do. Remember, it was doing as the father said that meant Jesus was not received in verse 43. He says, I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me. And of course, we know that what this means is that Jesus will so hear from the father and so be obedient to his father that it will take him directly to Calvary. And those words that are rejected by men will place him on a cross where he will take our sinful death upon himself. He will lay down his perfect righteous life because he heard from his father. 
See, the good news this morning is that Jesus has done the hearing for us. Jesus has lived in perfect obedience to his Father's words, and now we can hear unto participation in his eternal life. That's good news this morning, isn't it? This passage also comes with a warning. The warning which so strongly stated in verse 44 that we can't believe when we receive glory from one another. See, this morning I call on us to put away, for our soul's sake, put away all glory-seeking. Because glory-seeking silences the words of God. Our passage this morning has these Jewish authorities that are so oriented and so tuned in to receiving glory from one another that they can't hear from the Lord. I love this passage in Proverbs 29, and it says this. It says, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. See, we might classify this seeking of glory as a kind of fear of man, this orientation to the desires and uh, concerns around us and what others think. See, our over-concern of what people think, the fear of man, is exactly what these Pharisees struggled to overcome. In fact, throughout our time in John, we'll, seem, uh, we'll see the, them leverage social pressure to kind of get what they want out of people. These Pharisees loved the fear of man, and they loved to receive glory from one another. We might tune ourselves in this morning and say, okay, there's a couple different ways that we can kind of seek glory from one another, where we can have the fear of man. One is that we can desire approval from others. We can want the validation of other people around us. We think about Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus faults the Pharisees. He says they go into the temple uh, to pray, but they just love to be seen by others. When they give uh, to the poor, they do it in the presence so that everyone can know what they're doing, and, and they just are constantly showing off their spiritual life. We can be concerned with the uh, thoughts of others about ourselves. The second way we can do this is we can fear social consequence. We can fear what others take, might take from us. Remember Saul? When Saul was king, he um, found out that David was also a threat to his throne. And so he has this interaction with David over chapters throughout the books of uh, 1 Samuel. And it's really kind of hard to watch, to be perfectly honest with you. But the thing about this sin is it's so sneaky. It exists comfortably within uh, some well-intended parts of our lives, right? And we can try to be healthy for the glory we receive. We can try to be spiritual for the glory we receive from others. We can try to be funny for the glory we receive from others. We can even try to be humble to receive glory. Talk about a mess, right? what happens is that this glory seeking leads us to a kind of self-importance where everything I do has to be noticed. Have you ever like talked to somebody that's just given to one-upmanship? You tell a story and they say, oh yeah, well I knew a guy who, or I once did, I once knew someone who I would share something with them and they would say, oh that's nothing. That was like their byline. I, that's nothing. And they would go and on and tell me some greater story about themselves. We always have to one-up someone else. 
tired just living for this sense that we have to be noticed. We have to one-up everyone around us. See, there's a part of us that just so desires glory in all the wrong places. So desires to be respected and liked. We just orient ourselves in all the wrong ways. I wonder if we might tune ourselves in to the second half of verse 44. Look at what he says. He says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek, what? The glory that comes from the only God. You realize that God desires to give us glory? Not glory like his, not uh, glory that's final like his own. But he desires for us to participate in his glory, to partake of his glory. Isn't that what First Peter says? That we're partakers of the divine nature. John 17, we're going to see that Jesus actually says he shares his glory with his disciples. That you and I, as we hear the words of God, we hear the promise of God, are invited into this communion with God and thereby are actually renewed and restored. It's a glorious thing. See, all of this kind of comes to bear in our lives. Yesterday I woke up and I was in a foul mood. I should pray for my wife. That happens more often than I would like to think. I was in a foul mood. I don't know what it was. I was just focused on myself. And it's funny how you become focused on yourself and you think of yourself and you uh, are acting strangely because you're out of whack or whatever. I just woke up and I was in a foul mood and I didn't even really know why. I focused on myself in these particular areas and things I wanted to see happen. And when they didn't happen, I was put into a foul mood. And see what happened there? Everything just kind of twirled around me. Everything spun around the universe of me. I wanted to think about myself. I wanted to please myself. I wanted to do the things that I wanted to do. I wanted to have other people notice the things I do. And I wanted to just kind of have my world revolve around my desires and my wants and everything I wanted, right? It is a, a temptation of mine to pursue glory in all the wrong places, just like this text describes. One of the strangest places you can go on the earth is a pastor's meeting. I've just got to tell you that. It's just weird. First of all, pastors are weird people. i just got to be honest. But they all have this tendency to assess themselves based upon how other people think about them. They love to talk about how big their church is and how much money they have in the bank. And they can assess themselves by how many people download their podcasts and how many people have read the books they've written. By the way, I haven't written any books. I have no one downloading my podcast. Right? I woke up that morning thinking about me. What I needed, I needed a Copernican revolution of sorts that my world didn't revolve around me. My world revolved around Christ. I needed to see that God's grace was sufficient for me to be receiving glory, fully satisfied in the goodness of God in Christ. And I didn't have to meet all of my own needs. This morning, I wonder if we might be people who forsake earthly glory, horizontal glory, and pursue true vertical glory in Christ. I want to pray to that end. Lord, we ask now that you would allow us to be those who are devoted to heavenly glory. 
to see you at the center of our universe, to hear your words of life that give us life. Lord, allow us to be tuned in to your words, your desires, your design, just as Jesus was tuned in to your desires and your design so that we might also be fulfilled. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.